Well, good afternoon, brethren. It's a privilege to be here with you as we prepare for the spring holy days in a day or so. Appreciate the special music. You know, my mom tried to get me to take piano lessons, and I would rather play football. <clears throat> but I uh, appreciate what uh, Colin had done. I've been listening to that song for about six months, I think, <laughs> as he's been practicing and learning part by part. But that's, it's encouraging to see what our young people are doing. I also enjoyed having Mr. League in my class years ago. You know, I don't remember what his grade was, but, uh, but I enjoyed having him. We had a lot of <clears throat> good talks at that time. Brethren, in the sermon this afternoon, <clears throat> I'd like to address a very specific subject that I hope will be relevant to all of us, especially as we approach the holy days, because Satan seems to get very active uh, right before each one of the holy days to get our minds off of what the meaning of the holy days is all about. <clears throat> but before I get into that specific subject, I would like to put the subject in perspective just a little bit to show how it fits in a much bigger picture, as we heard in the sermonette, that God's plan and God's purpose encompasses the entire universe. But I want to show how this <clears throat> subject I'm going to talk about this afternoon relates to each one of you but in a bigger perspective. I'd like to address this to young people as well as to the adults. I'd like you to think for just a minute. <clears throat> Why are you on this earth? Why do you exist? Why are you here in the church, on the earth? What really is the purpose of life? You know, most people don't know. Their various religions have different ideas, different beliefs. There are various speculations, but most people don't really understand. But the Bible tells us, the Bible reveals why we're here. If we turn back to Genesis, we'll look at a couple of things before we get into the sermon. <clears throat> In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28, we're told that God said, Let us make man in our image, human beings in our image, according to our likeness, and give them dominion over the fish, fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, and so on. Verse 27, So God created man, human beings, in his own image. In the image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. So we've been created in the image of God, <clears throat> not in the image of chimpanzees, not in the image of uh, apes or orangutans or whatever, but God has created us in his image. And you can read about how God appears, how Jesus Christ appears in a glorified state. But we've been made in the image of God. You know, when you pick up a little baby and you look at the baby and it's just kind of a mirror image of you. They're just not quite as big, but they'll eventually grow that big. I can remember whenever boys were first born, I would pick them up and I'd hold them in my hand. I can't do that anymore. I used to hold Colin in my hand. <laughs> now he's about ready to pick me up. <clears throat> but they're created in our image. It's like we are created in God's image. And it's exciting to realize that. But why have we been created? 
in God's image. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3, and 4, see, the Bible tells us why we're created, what our purpose is. John mentions here in verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Our children are our children, but we are God's children to grow up to become like him. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we shall know, <clears throat> but we know that when we, he is revealed, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. We are to become like God, to develop his mind, his perspective, and his character. But notice then in verse 3, everyone that has this hope, if you hope to become part of God's family, You hope to be in God's kingdom. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself, strives to get rid of the leaven in our lives, to become more like God, just as he is pure. Whosoever commits sins commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, or sin is the transgression of the law, as the King James translates that verse. So we've been created to become like God. This is God's plan and this is God's purpose, and he has a process. One other scripture while we're here towards the end of the New Testament in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, and this is just one of the places where we can read about this. It says that God has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on this earth. This is our purpose. This is why we've been created in God's image, to eventually become part of God's family and to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth, to teach all human beings God's way of life, that God's way works, that God's way is the way to go. It's really the best way to live. But this is why we've been created God has a plan and a purpose. That purpose is pictured in Leviticus 23, the holy days. We're not going to go through that here, but you might want to review that this week. God has a plan and he has a purpose. And that purpose is pictured in his holy days. The Passover, picturing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The days of unleavened bread, of putting sin out of our life. And this is an active process. You know, we don't go to bed one night and wake up the next morning and, wow, it's all gone. No, we have to look for it. This, as you will probably find this week, about halfway through the week, you'll take a bite of something and you realize, oh, there's leaven in this. And then you, know, you didn't realize it, and then you have to repent of that. Again, that's merely a physical thing. But if we watch ourselves spiritually through the week, we'll catch ourselves doing things that we really shouldn't be doing. And we'll need to repent of those things, to become conscious of those things, to get rid of those things. But that's what the Days of Leavened Bread is all about. The Day of Pentecost that comes in the spring tells us and reminds us that we need God's Spirit 
We need God's spirit to get through this process, to make this process work effectively. And then the fall holy days, the Feast of Trumpets, pictures the time when Jesus Christ is actually going to return to this earth and intervene and bring peace to this earth and get rid of the evils and all the problems in the world. The Day of Atonement pictures Satan being bound and put away. I remember the first time I heard a minister go through this plan of God. Somebody asked me after church, what do you think of that? And I said, he just blew my mind. He said, I've never heard anything like that that made so much sense that God has a plan and a purpose that he's working out on this earth. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures the coming kingdom of God when the saints are going to reign on this earth with Jesus Christ. We're going to make a difference in people's lives for all eternity. And then the last great day that pictures a time of a resurrection when everyone who has ever lived, you know, Greeks and Romans and Egyptians, people down through history that were never called, that didn't understand the truth, could be relatives of ours, friends of ours, are going to come up in a resurrection and have a chance to learn the truth of God, the plan of God. This is incredible. As Mr. League mentioned in the announcements, that we've been given the privilege to understand the truth today, to understand that plan of God. Why do we start with the Passover? Why does God start with the Passover? I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. <clears throat> because this is the beginning of the process, the beginning of God working with us. And God explains in the Bible why he has to start there. In Romans 3 and verse 23 says, We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, you may never have killed anybody. You may never have stolen anything. You may never have committed adultery, but other people have. But chances are you and I have sinned spiritually. We've lusted. We've coveted. We've taken God's name in vain. Now, not everybody takes God's name in vain by swearing. It's possible to take God's name in vain by saying, well, I'm a Christian, and then not act like a Christian. You know, we're taking God's name in vain when we do that, to claim something that we're not really. But we're told that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In verse 24 it says, But being freely justified or justified freely by his grace, Jesus Christ died for our sins when we didn't deserve it. You know, I saw a short video on the Internet last week. It was a surgeon describing the suffering that Jesus Christ went through with the scourging and with the nails driven into his hand and the beating and everything else. And he wound up kind of choking back tears as he was describing what Jesus Christ went through. Now, this is probably a man that may or may not keep the Sabbath or the holy days. But he understood as a medical doctor what Jesus Christ went through, what he endured for your sins and my sins. And we need to keep that in mind as we partake of the Passover. But the Bible says we've all sinned. And as we read in 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the laws of God. You know, the Ten Commandments are laws. And if we break them, there will be consequences. We may get away with it temporarily, but those consequences will come. 
And we need to understand that. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we will sin even after baptism, but we can repent because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 6, also in verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life that he will give to those that repent, those that want to change, those that grow and overcome. The wages of sin is death. There are consequences. And the consequences is death for all eternity unless those sins are forgiven. And that is why Jesus Christ gave his life as a sacrifice for us so that we can be forgiven, so that we can receive this gift of eternal life. Why did God do that? Why did he send his son to this earth to die on our behalf? If you turn to John 3.16. This is a scripture that the Protestant world tends to overuse, but it's still a very important scripture because it happens to be in the Bible. It says, God so loved the world. And the the word for world here is cosmos, his creation, which includes human beings. It includes the animals and the plants on this earth. God likes what he created. He's going to make the new covenant with the animals of this earth as well as with human beings. But God is a God of love. Jesus Christ, out of love for us, gave his life for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him, accepts his sacrifice, should not perish, doesn't have to die, that is for all eternity, but that we can gain eternal life where we can live forever and watch our children grow and watch our grandchildren grow and see the children of other people grow and develop. But in order to receive eternal life, we've got to purify ourselves. And that's what the Days of Unleavened Bread is all about. But looking internally, using the Word of God, to shine a light on our lives and to see whether or not we're falling in line with those instructions. Now let's turn to 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll go through this the evening of the Passover. But we need to be thinking about these things as we approach the Passover. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let's begin in verse 28. It says, but let a man or let a person examine himself or herself. And so let them eat of the bread and drink of the cup, which we will do at the Passover. But we're to be examining ourselves, not just for five minutes before we partake of the bread and wine. But this is something we need to do periodically through the year. And once we're through the days of unleavened bread, doesn't mean, well, now we can forget about examining ourselves (laughs) and let's just enjoy life now. Now, this is part of a process that we need to be doing periodically. Let a person examine himself or herself, and so let them eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner is taking it easy. Now, this is just a custom that we do. I want to be seen partaking of the Passover. Eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
And this is what was very moving, listening to the surgeon talking about the the uh, scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, just kind of describing blow by blow what he went through. And when you realize what he went through, it's no wonder they said, Father, please, can this cup pass from me? Can we do this some other way? Because growing up as a boy in Judea, he probably saw criminals and other people being crucified. In some cases, they would live for a day or two or maybe longer. And you'd walk by and see this person. Jesus realized that's what I'm going to have to go through. But he went through that because he loves us. You would do a lot for your own children, for your own spouses, and for your friends. And Jesus went through this on our behalf. It says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you because they don't fully understand or appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, examine ourselves, then we wouldn't need to be judged or examined by someone else. As I mentioned, as we approach the Passover, in fact, as we approach the holy days throughout the year, we need to be examining ourselves. You're reading through the scriptures, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and ask yourself, am I actually functioning this way? Reading through what is called the Lord's Prayer. We ask for forgiveness, but are we willing to forgive? Do we forgive? Or do we carry grudges and hold things against people? Are we exercising the fruits of God's Spirit towards everyone. Do we love our enemies? We shouldn't have enemies. (laughs) But if you're on this side of the room and other people are over on the other side that you don't particularly like, we can't function that way as Christians. So Bible study and meditation are ways that we can examine ourselves. Sermons are another part of the process. You might think, well, I'm a Christian. I don't need anybody preaching at me. Well, what does the book say about that? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, let's pick up the thought. It says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. There are people today that don't think Jesus Christ was real or that he uh, never really did die. His disciples stole his body and it was just a big fake or that God doesn't exist. What we're talking about today is foolishness to many people. Down in verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, its own philosophies and so on, did not know God, but it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, or as the King James says, the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. There is a role for preaching in the church of God. In verse 23, it says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, talking about Christ being crucified, both Greeks and Jews, or Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, 
and the wisdom of God. Let's turn also to Romans chapter 10, where Paul talks about the importance of preaching. Romans chapter 10. And let's begin in verse 13. It says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And we all have roles to function in. And God has a plan and a purpose that he's working out on this earth. And how shall they preach unless they've been sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. The gospel is about peace, about the coming kingdom of God. And now with Christ dwelling in us, with his spirit, we can have a sense of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But it talks about they can't really preach unless they've been sent. Now, there are a lot of people preaching today that think they've been sent by God. But the Bible has some other things to say about that. So I wanted to put this in a perspective. That God has a plan and a purpose pictured in the holy days. As we go through the Passover and the days of unleavened bread, we are to examine ourselves, to strive to purify ourselves, to get rid of the leaven that doesn't need to belong there or doesn't belong there. I realize I'm preaching to the choir because you wouldn't be here if you didn't believe that. But I want to focus now in a more narrow sense on something just a little bit different, but it does apply to what we're talking about today. If we go to Matthew 24, Jesus left us some very sobering warnings, some things to watch for. If we look in the first couple of verses here in Matthew 24, we find some very targeted, very focused warnings. Jesus was asked by his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How are we going to know we're getting close to the end of the age, you know, to the culmination of the plan of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, and this is his first warning, take heed that no one deceives you. Be very alert that you're not going to be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, or I'm coming as a minister of Christ, and will deceive many. Now, just in case his disciples didn't get it, he repeated this again down in verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, or they will emerge, (laughs) they will come out of the woodwork or they'll come out of the church for that matter and deceive many. Finally, in verse 24, so three times in Matthew 24, Christ is warning about deception. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world. I'm sorry, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise or emerge and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Some have wondered, is it possible for the elect to be deceived? Well, if you get off base, you start following the wrong people. Yes, it is possible. It is possible, and Satan will try. He tried to deceive Peter. He tried to deceive others. In some cases, he succeeded. 
So what it's saying is not saying it's not, it's not, it's not possible. It is possible if we're not careful, if we're not staying close to God. It's possible to be deceived by others, and it's possible to deceive ourselves. It's possible to deceive ourselves. It's possible to reason yourself into a position where you have deceived yourself. You think, well, that's not possible. Well, if you think it's not possible, you haven't lived. You don't understand. It is possible to deceive yourself and to think you're totally right and be totally wrong. How do I know? I've been there. <laughs> I think many of you have been there. You reason yourself and you think, well, I'm totally right, but you're not totally right, and I wasn't totally right. I got my emotions all out of kilter on for a time or two and had to look back months later, in some cases just days later, in some cases hours later, and realize I was wrong, even though I got all worked up about something. But it is possible to deceive ourselves just as it's possible to be deceived by others. Now, Jesus was not the only individual to, to leave these warnings. If we go to Acts chapter 20, Paul was talking about exactly the same thing, and he's talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. Now, these, these are people that should know better, but notice what Paul was telling them. In verse 17, he said he sailed from Miletus, or from Miletus he said, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So he's calling a meeting with the elders as he came through Ephesus. And Paul had worked there, been there, knew them. Then he goes down and he talks about what he was preaching. Verse 21, he's preaching repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ. So this was part of Paul's gospel. He's preaching about Jesus Christ and repentance. He talks about preaching about the gospel of grace in verse uh, 24. You know, you and I have been called by God's grace. We didn't deserve to be called, but God has called us. He's chosen to work with us. In some cases, we were going 100 miles an hour the other direction, and he got our attention one way or the other. talks about his preaching about the kingdom of God in verse 25. Then in verse 27, he said, I've not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The word for counsel here in the Greek is boule, B-O-U-L-E. And it means the whole plan, the whole purpose, the whole will of God. Paul explained this big picture. Now, the word can also mean decision and advise and so on as you would counsel someone. But it can also mean this plan, this purpose, and that's what Paul is talking about. But notice then what Paul goes into. He says, for I know this. I know this. This is going to happen. That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among your own selves, men will rise up or men will emerge or they will step forward. You know, when the Church of God came apart in 1995, all kinds of people stepped out of the woodwork. Some you were surprised about and some you were not surprised about because they were probably preaching behind the scenes anyways. But they got websites and they set up little groups here and there. We've got hundreds of these groups. 
But Paul said, from among your own selves, men will rise up. It's not only men. Some of the women are doing the same thing. And speak perverse or misleading things to draw away disciples after themselves. And if you'll notice, or if you have noticed, whenever these little groups start, they have to come up usually with one or two or three different things that make them unique so that people won't stay with the church, but they'll follow somebody else. There's got to be something just a little bit different. In other words, why leave? And this has been the pattern. And Mr. Armstrong used to say years ago, when they split and when they leave, keep watching because they will split again and they will split again and they will split again and then wind up doing nothing. But this has happened. Paul was warning the people in the first century. Verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. This is going to happen. What he's saying is don't be deceived. Don't be pulled off in these different directions into one little group here and one little group there. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is toward the end of Paul's life, and he's talking about the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is advising Timothy as a young evangelist. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Preach the truth. You don't back off on it. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering, and do it patiently, persistently. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to listen to the truth. You know, I talked to one individual who left us because he said our concept of the gospel was wrong. Then he went with another group that uh, had a very different form of government that he knew was wrong, but he was going there anyways because he was having a chance to preach there that he wasn't having a chance with with us. You know, when you look at the big picture, time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, their own inclinations. Look it up in a couple of different uh, translations their own likes or their own preferences, their own whims, their own fancies. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And we've got hundreds of different teachers today, each wanting to do their own thing. You know, if we were all together, we'd be much more powerful with tithes and offerings and talents and everything else. But people are going off in little different directions here and there. And it waters down the whole approach. One final scripture or set of scriptures over in Titus. So Paul is talking about the same thing that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. Jesus said, many will come in my name and deceive many. He says, stay alert, don't be deceived. Paul is telling Titus, again, the same advice beginning in verse 7, chapter 1. He says, A bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, taking care of the truth, taking care of God's people, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, being serious, just, holy, self-controlled. 
But in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may, by able, may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict. Verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, many rebellious people, many people who reject authority. I don't have to be under the church. I can do it my way. It's just me and God. What Paul is saying here, many rebellious, insubordinate people, both idle talkers or wild talkers, as, the, as one of the translations, they just love to talk. They just love to you know, put stuff on the Internet. I guess that's the, the way we do it today. But they're misleading. They're misleading people and they're misled themselves, especially those of the circumcision. That was the issue in Paul's day. We have some other issues today. Whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households. You know, they get into one, get one person, then they get a couple of other people and take the whole household away. Teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain to get people to follow them. What I want to talk about in the remainder of the sermon today is how to avoid being deceived. How to avoid deception. And this is something we need to examine in our own lives. As I mentioned, We can be deceived by others, but we can deceive ourselves. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it talks about the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. If we're not careful, we can allow our thoughts to carry us away in a wrong direction. It's very possible. You can look up a couple of other scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18, and James chapter 1, verse 26, where Paul and James talk about self-deception. We can deceive ourselves if we're not careful. We can deceive ourselves if we're not careful. We can reason ourselves into a position that will take us out of the church and that we will lose out on the coming kingdom of God. And Satan will rejoice at that. Ah, that's another notch on his gun. Got that one. Got that one. Got that one, and they didn't even know what hit them. You know, I snuck this thing in, they began thinking about it, and it took them out. I want to talk about ten ways that we can avoid deception. Ten ways that Satan operates. Ten things that we, if we start doing, we're going to be like putting one foot on a a dock and one foot on a boat. And... (laughs) Eventually, you go in the water because the boat won't stay still. Anybody ever been there? Anybody going in the water? (laughs) But if we're alert to these things, you don't put one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. You just don't do that. Then you won't fall in the water if you recognize that. You know, sadly, we've had three or four young men lost their lives in the last year or so either due to motorcycle accidents, alcohol, firearms. These are things, young people and older people. You know, God only gives us one body. He only gives us one life. And if we do certain things that take risks, we may lose that life and damage that body. Mr. Jonathan McNair has written a very interesting article in the May-June Tomorrow's World is going to be coming out. 
It's targeted to teenagers, but talks about sowing wild oats. And he just mentions that as a teenager, it's tempting. You know, when you're away from your parents and when you're away from re- restrictions and so on, it's tempting and it's kind of exciting. Wow, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm not in bed. <laughs> this is exciting. Or, you know, I, I, I got drunk last night. Just wanted to see what it would feel like. Or you could list a bunch of other things. As Mr. McNair brings out in the article, cause and effect operate. And when you break a law, there's going to be a consequence at some point in time. If we go too fast, drink too much, play around with guns too much, something is liable to happen. You know, when our boys were growing up in high school, they were told school nights, you need to be home by 8.30 or so, something like that. And even on weekends, you need to be home by 10 o'clock or so. And the question, well, why? Everybody else is out. I said, because after that, Later at night, things begin to happen. I think whenever Scott was a senior, the year of gra- or the, w- the week of graduation, around the prom time, some kids were out, and I think they hit a bridge or something. I don't remember all the details, but one or two of the kids were killed, and then they had this big day at school, or a day of silence or something, and a big assembly, and so on. I think Scott, I think. I said, what time was it when the accident occurred? I said, two or three o'clock in the morning, something like that. And the question is, well, what were they doing out at two or three o'clock in the morning? Because this is the type of thing that happens. I remember reading in a paper about a girl coming home from work, and she was attacked. And the paper just said she was coming home at three o'clock in the morning. The people that are out at 3 o'clock in the morning are usually looking for something to do. It's not the wisest place to be. These are things we need to think about. I think I've shared the story. When I was in high school, we had some sort of an activity, and we came out of the activity. It was about 9 o'clock at night. And this one kid, his dad had just gotten a new Ford convertible. And somebody said, let's go for a ride in the new car. So we pile into the car, about six of us. We drove out through the countryside, and somebody asked, he said, how fast will this car go? And the driver said, I don't know. Let's find out. And I'm in the back seat. I can't get out. I can't go anywhere. And he's sailing over these hills over 100 miles an hour. And I thought, God, please, I want to be out of here. So we got back to school, and I kind of made up my mind, that's it. I'm not doing that again. There could have been somebody coming over the hill the other way. And it would have been all over. See, if we allow ourselves to get into positions, into places where things can happen, then sometimes things do happen. Even as a teenager, we need to be praying, God, please watch over me tonight. You know, protect me. Because if we forget to do those things, there may be consequences. I want to talk about ten ways then that we can avoid being deceived or hopefully knowing these things. We can think ahead. Point number one is don't take liberties with God's law. Don't take liberties with God's law. 
Now, during the Days of Unleavened Bread, you might, as Dr. Meredith mentioned in a recent sermon, review the booklet on the Ten Commandments. Maybe look at one commandment or two commandments, one or two per day, and think about it. Read it in the morning, read it in the evening, think about it. Am I taking liberties with the Sabbath? Am I taking God's name in vain? Do I claim to be a Christian and (laughs) treat other people like dirt? Or do I spread rumors about people? Think about these things. Do I break the commandments of God? But don't take liberties. Again, laws broken bring consequences. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. And we can claim to love God, but if we don't keep the commandments of God, then we're hypocrites. Isaiah 66, 2, it talks about trembling before the word of God. We don't want to take liberties with it. If it says it, we want to do it. And then we can be confident God is going to watch over us. But if we're playing games with God, he may let us reap what we sow. Because that principle is mentioned over and over and over in the scriptures. That we are held accountable. David talked about in the Psalms 119 verses 97, 98 through 105. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows me where I need to be going. And it shows me where I don't need to go. Now, if we take liberties with that, then there will be consequences. You know, we don't want to have to deal with the consequences. So don't take liberties with the law of God. Number two, if we want to avoid deception, we need to be stay focused on the big picture. If we lose sight of the big picture, then we'll begin to compromise the laws of God. Now, Jesus told us in Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think sometimes we think, well, we've got to save the church. We've got to be the one to intervene and do things. No, God is going to work things out. God will work things out. If something's going off and is in a wrong direction, he'll take care of it. We can bring it to the attention of whoever we need to bring it to and then let God work things out. But we want to jump in and start sending emails all over the place and making a big scene about this and that. We need to let God work things out in his time and in his way, and he will do that. If we get all bent out of shape over something, God may have a reason for why he's allowing something to happen or why he's doing something a certain way. It boils down to faith. It boils down to faith. It's God's church. He's going to take care of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let's look at that one. It's another principle just to keep in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is talking about a body having many parts. But in verse 18, it says, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. In other words, God is placing us in his body. You didn't ask to be called. I didn't ask to be called. But God called you and God called me. 
And he's placed us in the body as it pleases him. And sometimes we're not pleased <laughs> with where we're placed. And we may gri- uh, you know, groan and complain and whatever. You know, when I, when I first went out to Pasadena as a student, I was asked to teach biology, the class that Mr. League was in. <laughs> I didn't particularly want to teach biology and cut up frogs. I wanted to be a minister and do some other things like that, but I was asked to teach, and that's what I did for 10 years, I think until I learned certain lessons. And then I was given other opportunities. But God places us. God's in charge, and he has a big picture in his mind. You know, he didn't call me to teach biology. I think he called me for other things, but there were lessons that I needed to learn along the way. He's called each of us to become kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. But we've got to develop the character. We've got to develop the patience, the understanding, the persistence. Some people don't get their way. I'm out of here. I've had it. This can't be God's church. Well, it is God's church. And God is working with each one of us. But we've got to keep this big picture in mind that God places us in the work as it pleases him. You know, he didn't use you and he didn't use me to start the living church of God. He used Dr. Meredith, who'd been molded and fashioned for that. And we need to understand that. Some people just want to brush him off. Well, he's this old man. You know, church needs to wake up and get up, get with it. That's very... Dangerous thinking. Again, he didn't call you. He didn't call me to start the living church of God. He called a man who he was using and will continue to use as long as Dr. Meredith lets God use him. So we need to keep that big picture in mind. Number three, don't get sidetracked on single issues. Don't get sidetracked on single issues. You could put Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 that we just read. You know, some people have come up with, sing, many people actually have come up with single issues. I'm leaving the church because you guys have a wrong gospel. You're talking about Jesus Christ being part of the gospel. Well, read Romans, read 1 Corinthians, read most of the New Testament. Paul preached about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He preached about Jesus Christ. Philip preached about Jesus Christ. They preached about a gospel of grace, a gospel of peace. They preached about the coming kingdom of God. That was what they preached about. That's what we're preaching about today. And just because somebody comes up with an idea that it's not supposed to be about Jesus Christ, that's something else. It's just about the kingdom of God. Really doesn't know the scriptures. But some people are being sucked into that. And they're being pulled out of the church because of that. This issue about the falling away. You know, Doug Winnale is leading the church off in the wrong direction. You look up the word. We went through this in a sermon, the word apostasia. It means turning away from a former belief. It could include the truth of God. Our nation is turning away from the foundation values that we were founded upon. We've got a presidential administration promoting same-sex marriage. And a bunch of other things. You know, Mr. Obama's 
quotation. He says, whatever we once were, we are no longer a nation of Christians, but a nation of Muslims and Buddhists and whatever else. I mean, actually saying these things. Yes, what happened in the church of God was a big thing for the church. But we're watching the Western world turning away. You know, they didn't understand about the Sabbath and the holy days. But they're losing other fundamental values. And while we did, you know, we didn't come up with this thing. It wasn't my idea totally. I, I mentioned some ideas. Dr. Meredith talked about it. Mr. Ames did. We talked about this on the council for over two years before we came up with the concept that we have now. It's a bigger concept. And there were some people that left the church because they didn't want to go along with the decision of the council. And my guess would be that in the first century, when the council of elders made a decision about circumcision, the males did not have to be circumcised to be in the church, there were probably people that left the church then because they didn't agree with the decision that the council made. You know, so be careful about single issues. Some people have left the church because we haven't kicked people out of the church that might eat out on the Sabbath. You know, Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, Jesus picked the grain because he was hungry. I mean, these are single issues that will take people out of the church if we're not careful. A number of years ago, some people were on this kick. That why do we have to call ministers Mr.? You know, why can't we just call them Joe or whatever? You know, when you go to your dentist's office, you say, Dr. So-and-so. You go to a medical doctor, Dr. So-and-so. You go before a judge, what do you say? Hey, you. <laughs> say, Your Honor. <laughs> you use a title. You use a title. Some people left the church because Dr. Meredith used the phrase, we're the spear point of the work of God. And the person didn't like that, so he pulled a number of people out of the church. And these are single issues that miss the boat. And they'll take people out of the church if we get focused on these things. We need to stay focused on the big picture. Okay, number four, be careful of idea babies. Be careful of idea babies. What's an idea baby? You get an idea. You conceive this idea. Then you nurture it, and you bathe it, and you pat it, and then you share it with others. Be careful. Let's turn to Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Now, you might think, well, I know all this stuff. But, you know, if we don't review these things, you're liable to be blindsided and not even recognize it because this happens again and again and again. Beginning in verse 19, first, Second Peter chapter 1, and so we have the prophetic word made uh, confirmed or made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. You know, we've had people leave the church recently over their private interpretations of the Scripture. 
They didn't agree with decisions that the Council of Elders made. So they have their own decisions. And they said, well, I've been forced out. Nobody forced anybody out. They decided to leave because we didn't accept their ideas. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And we find that recorded then in the scriptures. But be careful of idea babies coming up with your own ideas, your own interpretation of scriptures, and then concluding, I'm right, the church is wrong. And we get letters periodically. I've just been praying that the church would come to understand what God has shown me. And I've got a file of these things. In many cases, what the person doesn't realize is we got a letter five years ago, the same idea that somebody else had. So it's not something special. But be careful of idea babies. Number five, don't listen to rumors. Don't listen to rumors. All you have to do is get on the Internet, and you'll find all kinds of rumors floating around. There's a scripture to keep in mind. Proverbs 18, verse 17. It's kind of like saying, you know, don't put your foot on the boat and on the dock. You be aware. And what we're being told here in Proverbs 18, verse 17. The first one to plead his cause seems right. The first person that brings this up seems right, because they'll give you a bunch of reasons, until his neighbor comes and examines him. Now, wait a minute. What's the other side of the coin? What's the other side of the story? And then this, this reason that sounded so wonderful, oh, well, wait, there's, there's more to this that wasn't mentioned by the first person. If you hear something, you're really concerned about it, go talk with the people involved. You know, is Dr. Meredith really taking the church off in the wrong direction? Is he preaching something different today than he did 60 years ago? There'll be some things that will change a little bit because we're going to grow over a period of time. You know, Doug Winnell supposedly taking this church off in the wrong direction. You know, I got fired for preaching a sermon about keeping the Sabbath and holy days. Lost a job for doing that. I'm not about to change the Sabbath and the holy days. No way. Yeah, but you're falling away. Well, look at the word. Go through the, the grammar. Look, look at the whole thing. We're going to change things. We're going to take the church off in the wrong direction. But because of what we've gone through as a church, there is a sensitivity, and I understand that. We had a fellow in one of our congregations that I pastored. If I would read something or if I'd be preaching about something and I wouldn't use the exact words that Mr. Armstrong had used, then he was, he was really upset. He left a comma out. You know, <laughs> there, was, there was something that was missing. I'm not going to remember everything word for word. Neither would you. But we want to stay on the right track. We want to stay in the same direction, on the same page. But don't listen to rumors. There's a rumor going around of power struggles here in Charlotte. Dr. Winnale and Mr. Ames, we've got this big power structure struggle going on. That's a joke. Mr. Ames has been designated to be the successor. I'm happy with that. I'll support him. Our job is to work together. 
Whoever dreams this stuff up needs to get a life. <laughs> they have nothing better to do, apparently. Uh, this is ridiculous. You know, whenever the living, before the Living Church of God started, the global church was coming apart. I got a couple phone calls. Don't go with Dr. Meredith. He's a sick man. He's going to die. He's got cancer. He was having a couple skin cancers taken off his face. This is 15, 16 years later, not dead yet <laughs> from skin cancer. But this, this was the rumor that was going around. He stole money. You know, how can you follow a man like that? He was put off the council. He wrote a couple of checks. He wanted that money that was in the account to pay off people who would loan money to the church because he knew the other guys were not going to pay him back. If he had broken a law and if he was guilty, he would have been arrested. When we went to our lawyer in Southern California about that, the guy laughed. He said, Dr. Meredith didn't get any money out of that. He was trying to pay back some people. He didn't break any laws. But the people that were circulating the rumors were making it sound like this guy's terrible. But it was a rumor. If you hear stuff like anything like that in your concern, come, come talk to us. As opposed to including, yeah, when Nail's crazy, you know, he's going to get the church in bad trouble or whatever. If I do, God will take care of that. But go to the person that has you, know, you have the issue with. Don't listen to these rumors. Um, it's ridiculous. Number six, beware of clever arguments. Beware of clever arguments. You know, one of the arguments about this falling away or the rebellion thing is that how can you leave the truth if you've never had it? Very simple. If you turn away from the values of God, which our nation did have at one time, you know, if you read the novel written by who was it, um, the New England writer, was it Longfellow or who wrote the Scarlet Letter? Who's our English scholars here, English literature scholars? Hawthorne, Nathaniel Hawthorne, wrote a book entitled The Scarlet Letter. The church pastor had an affair with a lady in his congregation. She was found out. She wouldn't confess who it was. So she was consigned to wear a scarlet letter on her blouse, a big A that said, I'm an adulteress. And this is the gist of the story that the preacher had to preach, and he's looking at this lady wearing the scarlet letter. This is what we thought of adultery at one time in this country. We're not phased by things like that today. You know, you can turn away from the values of God. You can turn away from the truth of God. What happened in the church, many people turned away from the truth of God, maybe 100,000, maybe. But what's happening in our nation, millions of people. What's happening in the Western world, multiple millions in Australia and Canada and South Africa and places like that. And that's all we're saying is this falling away can be bigger than something that just happened in the church of God. But clever arguments come up. Clever arguments were used for people to keep uh, Sunday instead of the Sabbath. God loves you. And God wouldn't want you to lose your job over the Sabbath and have your family go hungry. So if you need to work on the Sabbath, God will understand. 
Well, that totally takes God out of the picture. If you'll stand up for the truth, and if you're a good employee, you might lose your job, but chances are they'll make room for you because good employees are not that easy to find. You'll also gain respect if you hold on to what is true. But when you start compromising, then it's all over. So beware of these clever arguments. Another clever argument is the reason that we keep Christmas is to remember the birth of Jesus Christ, which sounds good, but he wasn't born on December 25th. That was the birthday of the sun god. And God is not real happy when we take pagan holidays and try and make them Christian. But these are clever arguments that people have bought into. Well, we keep Easter to celebrate the resurrection. But Christ didn't come out of the grave on Sunday morning. People got there and the angel said, he's gone. (laughs) He's been out of here. But these are the rationale and these are the reasonings, the clever arguments that we've got to be careful of. Notice in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 6. These instructions are here for our admonition. If we forget them, then we're going to be led astray. Ephesians 5 and verse 6 is that let no one deceive you with empty words or with groundless arguments or emotional arguments or whatever. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, not, do not be partakers with them. For you were once in darkness, but you're now in light. So be careful of clever arguments that come along. And one of these other arguments is, we don't need the church. I don't need the church. You just mean God. I can talk to God. I don't need these ministers telling me what to do. We're not here to tell anybody what to do. And you won't be doing that in the kingdom of God. We're going to tell people God's way. And we let people make up their own minds. And as God says, you will reap what you sow. If people won't listen to what is being preached, they won't listen to advice, then they're welcome to make up their own minds. But there could be a a very difficult way to go, a very uncomfortable way to go. Number seven, don't blindly follow other people. Don't blindly follow other people. You know, I asked one individual, I said, how did you wind up in this organization over here? And his comment to me was, I had my family all ready to go with Dr. Meredith, and then all of a sudden I find myself over here in this other group. He went with the flow because everybody he was around went in that direction. Instead of swimming upstream, he floated downstream. You don't blindly follow other people. Don't blindly follow other ministers. We need to prove what it is that is the truth. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. I think one of the reasons that many people left the church is they never proved what was right and never proved what was true. I remember counseling with a minister whenever I first came into the church. And he asked me one time, he said, where would you go? And this was back 
in the late 60s. He said, where would you go if this church came apart? I said, I don't know where I'd go. There's no place to go. He said, good answer. <laughs> but I've talked with people. Well, if this church comes apart, I'll go out of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Or I'll go over here. I'll go over there. God doesn't have a whole bunch of churches all over the place. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of the grave will not prevail against it. It's going to be around. It's going to be here. And you need to prove where that church is. But don't blindly follow other people. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 11. A very sobering chapter. I think when we read it and we think about it, especially in the context of the days that we're living in today. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Paul is talking about people coming along, preaching a different gospel, a different Jesus Christ or a different Christ, and also having a different spirit. In verse 13, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing of his ministers if his ministers transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. And do you realize what that's saying? It's talking about people that will transform themselves, make themselves apostles, make themselves prophets. And what they're called is, is ministers of Satan. It's not first one ale. It's first Corinthians is what Paul is saying. And these people that proclaim themselves to be apostles, proclaim themselves to be ministers, proclaim themselves to be prophets, very dangerous place to be. Very dangerous place to be. And we've got to be careful we don't get sucked into following things like that or people like that. So that's number eight. Number nine, Beware of offenses, disillusionment, judgmental attitudes, and bitterness. Beware of becoming offended. Well, you offended me. I'm out of here. Be careful. Don't let things offend you. Beware of being disillusioned. Well, Dr. Meredith's not perfect. Doug Winnell is not perfect. Neither is Mr. Lee. He may be more perfect than me. <laughs> no, none of us are perfect. Was David perfect? Was Samuel perfect? And Samuel appointed his sons as judges. They weren't real good guys. And that was the excuse that the Israelites used. You, you know, we want a king. We want a king. They used that as an excuse. Go back and read it, 1 Samuel 8. What did God say? Samuel, they've rejected me. They've rejected me, the people, in asking for a king, even though Samuel had made a parental mistake. So we've got to be careful. Peter was the leader of the apostles. But who was it that denied Christ three times? 
Who did Satan go after? Who did Paul have to even correct over an issue? Peter wasn't perfect. But God used him. God used him. Moses wasn't perfect. Go back and read that in Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron came up. You shouldn't have married that woman. But if you go back a chapter before that, you find probably what the real reason was. God told Moses to appoint 70 other individuals to help lead Israel, which made Moses, made Aaron and Miriam's role different. And they had some, apparently some problems with that. So they bring up this other issue about the marriage. See, when circumstances change, we've got to be able to adjust with that and not start judging other people. Because if we do, we're going to get bitter. Why did God let them be over the work? Why is God letting them to make these mistakes? Well, who are you to judge and who am I to judge? Now, if we go off telling people to keep Sunday and keep Christmas and stuff like that, you'll have a reason to to leave. But if it's a personality difference, be careful. Be careful because this can take you out of the church. I think we're up to what? I think number nine. Beware of pride and vanity. We just heard a sermonette about this. If there's contention someplace, there's probably pride involved. Proverbs 8 and verse 13. In Proverbs 13, verse 10, it talks about where there's pride and where there's pride, contention generally arises. You might want to go back and read Numbers 16. 14 and 16, actually, but number 16. Korah got 250 leaders in Israel on his side. He said, Moses, who do you think you are? There were leaders in the nation of Israel. You need to listen to us. What did Moses do? Look, 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 this is not good. This is not good. But they persisted. And then Korah and two other leaders and their families came up before the tabernacle. And Moses says, everybody get away from them. Everybody get away from them. If God is with me, the earth is going to open up. If they die like anybody else and keep living, then God is not with me. And the earth opened up. And they went in. And then what happened? What did the people do? They blame Moses. You killed God's people. See, they lost the perspective. God was working with Moses. wasn't perfect, but he was working with Moses. They lost sight of that. And we've got to be careful today, brethren, that we don't lose sight of some of these same things and start hurling accusations back and forth and feeling self-righteous and so on. God is in charge. But these things can take us out of the church And it boils down to pride and vanity. We can deceive ourselves. And this is the message I want to get across this afternoon. We can deceive ourselves, buying into certain arguments and noticing certain human problems and forgetting that God is in charge. Last thing I want to mention is Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. You might want to spend some time with this and think about it about the cares of this world. 
we're all susceptible to the cares of this world. We live in the world. And we have to deal with the temptations that are in the world. Maybe you stop by McDonald's or somewhere, and if you're a young lady and some handsome kid serving hot dogs or hamburgers there, and he looks at you, oh, oh, you again. You got pretty eyes. And it keeps going and going from there, and you keep going back to the same place. You don't like hamburgers, but you go back anyways. <laughs> Why? Well, because there's a tension there. There's somebody that notices you. Or maybe uh, you're a guy, you go to the bank and you're changing some money and the girl says, oh, it's so good to serve you. Wow, yeah, okay, good. (laughs) But, you know, if you've been called and they're not, it's not going to work out. It's not going to work out. You may be tempted to get a motorcycle. Hey, it's cheaper than a car. Get 50 miles to the gallon. I was talking with somebody recently. Their son wanted to get a motorcycle, and the father said, I'd like you to watch and cut out the obituaries for two weeks in the paper. Notice what happens to motorcycle drivers. At the end of two weeks, he said, I don't want a motorcycle. Again, I'm not against these things, but we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We don't want to go in directions where the, the odds are against us. You know, sexual activity today. Young people experience an awful lot of sexually transmitted diseases. Even though they're only about 14% of the, the population, they wind up with about half of the sexually transmitted diseases that happen every year. Again, young people, 14% of the population account for, in the case of boys, 30% of the automobile accidents, and girls, 28%. These are the statistics. If we're going to be driving, we've got to be careful. We can't be drinking. A lot of things like that. But beware of the cares of this world, position, recognition, the pulls, the temptations. You know, we're tempted to spend money here, spend money there, and then we wind up getting in debt because we haven't learned to say no. We've got to come out of this world by saying no to various things. What we've done in the sermon today is to look at ten ways that we can avoid deception. Why did we talk about this? Because Jesus warned three times in Matthew 24, take heed that no one deceives you, because many will come in my name and deceive many. We can be deceived by other people, But the big challenge is, brethren, we can deceive ourselves, we can reason ourselves into very dangerous positions if we're not staying close to God. We're not asking for God's guidance and direction. And in some cases, we're not willing to listen to counsel. We just don't want to hear it. So let's remember the warnings that Jesus Christ gave us. Let's remember and think about as we go through the Days of Unleavened Bread, these ten ways that we can be deceived if we're not careful because God wants us to grow. He doesn't want us to wipe out prematurely. He doesn't want to lose us, but Satan does. Satan doesn't want any of you to be in the kingdom of God, and he will work on you. 
As one person told me one time, he says, we all have our hot buttons. We all have buttons that Satan can press and get to us, and he knows what they are. We've got to realize what they are. You know, if we have problems with alcohol, then stay away from it. Be very careful. If we like to take risks, don't do it when you're driving. Don't do it when you're driving. Be careful who you spend time with because Satan is out to destroy us. He doesn't want us to be in the kingdom of God, but God has called you. He wants you to be there. He wants you to reign with Jesus Christ. So as we go through the Days of Unleavened Bread, as we go through the Holy Days this year, let's stay close to God and let's strive to not be deceived.